This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, Lynn Finnegan, the head of the Hawaii Republican Party, sat down with us in our studios. She served as minority leader for eight years as a lawmaker in the state house. The primary election drew a large percentage of voters who pulled Republican tickets, almost as large as in 2002 when Linda Lingle was elected Hawaii's second-ever Republican governor. Here's Finnegan. You know, as a layperson looking at the results, you look at it and say, oh, my gosh, you know, the Republican Party is dead and you don't have uh, hope at all because there was an overwhelming amount of votes going to the Democrat side and, you know, not enough on the Republican side to beat the Democrats in the future. However, when you look back at the historical results, um, it shows great promise for us. Uh, we had some of the highest numbers that we've seen in, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, we know from governor's race to governor's race, so every four years instead of uh, including the presidential races, um, that it's been the highest that we've seen since Governor Lingo. Um, and we look at some of the blank votes on the Democrat side when you're looking at the down ticket. Is that good information for our legislative candidates? Absolutely. We're also seeing higher numbers. When I got elected um, in the state house in 2006, so it was my uh, third term, my numbers for the primary was a measly 471 votes. And the um, Hawaii Democrat Party's treasurer, very well loved in the Democrat Party, ran and she got in the primary 2,500 uh, 2, 2, votes. Wow. Um, and in the general, it totally flipped. I had 3,500 votes, and she had less than me uh, by quite a bit. So, you know, is there hope? Absolutely. Our numbers are deceiving when it comes to Republicans in Hawaii. Um, we're traditionate traditionally a blue state, but we've got a lot going on. I think the momentum is only going to build from here. I did go back and look at the numbers when Governor Lingle and Lieutenant Governor Iona <laughs> won that year, and, and that was just astounding. I mean, it mm-hmm. was it was a, a close race with Maisie, but the, the numbers are, are, are close to the turnout that we just had this past primary. Yeah, and I think what we're also looking at is trending, right? So if you look at the trending and, and include presidential races, you see the trend going up with Republican voters. Now, maybe people can't out there in Hawaii, you know, we're a strongly blue state. Maybe they just can't pull a Republican ballot or look up and down. You know, they're not quite there yet. But we do feel that uh, the voting public feels more free in a general election that they could say, I'll vote for a Republican, but maybe I can't be a Republican, you know, so we'll take that, you know, <laughs> we'll take anything you can get at this exactly. point. Exactly. You know, uh, I, I was uh, going back and, and um, kind of putting myself back 20 years ago and mm-hmm. you know, like, what were the issues? And one of the things that came up, public corruption. Oh, yes. And, you know, so what's interesting about that is the two-party system. You know, we talk about it. What does it mean? A two-party system to me brings transparency and accountability. It's when that party is strong enough that they can fight back, that they can, you know, garner enough attention to be able to say, hey, hey, look over here. This is the other side to the story. What I've seen is that, you know, over the years, we just haven't had a strong enough voice. And now what we've been able to do is recruit a lot of candidates, more than we have probably, you know, in a very long time, maybe 20 years, maybe since Governor Lingo. We've had some really good primary uh, elections this year where some of our candidates were, we had a, almost a three-way tie in I. We had a virtual tie on Maui. We had a recount on those two races as well as one in Kaneohe. So we're we're active. We're going. You know, I think that uh, more and more, again, we, you know, my job as the state chair is to build that momentum based upon what we're seeing. And it's not it's not just the hope. I think it's a. Uh, it's possible, you know, it's possible. And so go back to uh, the year that Lingle won, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, you know, I believe, you know, that spurred uh, a number of wins. You know, we had, what was it, 14, 16 mm-hmm. uh, representatives y- in the yeah. House? Yeah, I've, I, I forgot, but we went all the way up to, I think, at one point in time, 20, you know, which is substantial. And I think coming from the legislative side of things, you know, being elected in the House Minority Leader for eight years... We absolutely need that kind of support and voice in the legislature should Duke and um, Junior become governor and lieutenant governor. 
will need absolutely more Republicans in the House and Senate. Um, you know, and, and we have that. We have quality people running. But we've got so few numbers on the Republican side. Mm-hmm. I think it's down to four. You know, you're losing uh, McDermott, a strong voice there. Yes. About Wokimoto. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, how, how are you looking at, at, at getting those numbers back up again? Again, we've recruited some wonderful candidates that are sharp, that are, you know, family-oriented in the community. You know, Lauren and Jean are still there as Republican voices. Lauren comes from the standpoint of being, you know, a young mother struggling in this uh, economy to raise her children, pay for preschool, you know, uh, and then you have Gene Ward over there and Kurt Favela, both Kurt Favela and Gene Ward are unopposed. You know, you have Sam DeCourt over on the white and I side. She represents, you know, a district that's very blue collar and very proud of it. And she's uh, articulate and, you know, is a wonderful campaigner. We have uh, Brenton Awa on the, on the North Shore where he did such a good job that he's got strong numbers going into the general election. We have so many good candidates out there that I know that we're going to pick up seats. And so uh, let's go back to the uh, governor and lieutenant governor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the paper this morning talked about there are differences on key issues, you know, abortion, yeah. uh, I think the gun rights. You know? yeah. So um, how are you looking at that ticket? You know, after you look at the, the title of the article, you realize the, ti- the title is to get your attention because when you read through it, they have a lot of similarities. They're both on the spectrum of being pro-life. It's just that across the country, 70% of the voting public believes that there should be some kind of restrictions on abortion. So whether you're five months in the womb or five months outside of the womb, uh, that there is agreement, that there should be some kind of restriction. Uh, where they are at is just on the spectrum of what those restrictions should be. And we are realists. We're pragmatic here in Hawaii as Republicans in a Democrat state. We're all about, hey, you know what? Abortion is legal right now. We need to do the work that we need to do in the community to help people understand that we respect life in or outside of the womb. We're not here to pound and say, you know, we're going to change abortion for Hawaii. It has to come from the community. And how we do that is through education. And what about the Trump factor? The Trump factor. You know, uh, Trump's doing well across the country, as you can see with some of the, you know, gearing up for the midterm elections and you're seeing a red wave over there. We have very excited Trump supporters here when there's news like that. Um, What I would also say, though, is we as the Hawaii Republican Party have to represent both pro-Trump and anti-Trump. Because in the party, mm-hmm. in the party. But what we also have as a super opportunity right now is that the support for Biden is so low across the country as well as here in this state. And people who have voted for Biden are looking at that and going, you know what, maybe we shouldn't have or maybe, you know, there needs to be some correction here. And so we're hoping that our candidates on the federal level, both Conrad Kress as well as Joe Akana and Bob McDermott, they're all running in these federal races. That's definitely, those seats are definitely the David and Goliaths of our, all of our races. And we're hoping that, you know, we can pick up a seat or two in, in, in that area. You know, we saw in the primary the super PACs kind of get nasty with some mm-hmm. of the campaign ads. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you think it's going to reach that level for the general between the Re- Republicans and the Democrats? Well, the way that it works is super PACs come in and they try to make a difference by putting pouring in a lot of money. Now, traditionally, Hawaii is a blue state. I don't know if super PACs are going to be coming in and saying we're going to spend the money on Republican races, you know, in a very, very blue state like ours. Uh, what I would say is it's my job um, as the state chair to speak up when I see things that may not be fair or may be wrong in our opinion or may be very against what Republicans believe. Um, so whether it's corruption and uh, questioning you know, financial disclosures or anything like that, I'm going to make it my responsibility to do the research. And what was so interesting was how strongly both Vicky Cayetano as well as Kai Kahele came out on some of those issues. And we need to understand what they're talking about. I was too busy doing 
promotion of our candidates and making sure that we got as many Republicans to the table as possible by voting. But I'm going to look into some of those allegations and see, are these the things that we should look into? You know, we owe it to the the people of Hawaii. If there's corruption going on or things that are, you know, misleading, then we should address that. And so how do you uh, plan to, I guess, bridge the divide within the party? You know, because the headlines with Trump are still evolving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are strong feelings on you know both sides of the fence. How yeah. do you see that? It's very, very tricky at this point. It's very tricky. I think it's it's so important because for those who are Trump supporters in our family of Republicans, you know, they feel very strongly that, you know, things are unfair. I would say that as we make sure that we talk about those, you know, national issues that are important, that we also have to look at our home, our home state. All politics is local, and most of the times that's true. We have some serious problems here. We have inflation across the country, but inflation guaranteed here that people are feeling. Our economy, our cost of living, so high, you know, and people know that. People know that, and people feel that. Corruption, corruption of two sitting legislators in very strong positions in the legislature that took money to kill bills or pass them, you know, that's wrong. Is it prevalent? Is it out there? Well, the perception of the people of Hawaii is yes, it is. So I think we're ripe for this discussion. We're ripe for voting Republican. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to help the voters understand that it, with absolute power comes uh Corruption, absolutely, right? And so we need to do that. We need to elect a two-party system that allows for checks and balances, which means transparency, accountability, uh, voices at the table that aren't heard so that you can have rigorous discussion and rigorous debate. That was Lynn Finnegan, chair of the Hawaii Republican Party, talking with us about the results of this weekend's primary election and the road ahead to the general election in November. We continue to talk politics for a reality check. Higher than usual, Republican voter turnout is the subject of a story by Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Kirsten Downey. Good morning, Kirsten. Aloha, Catherine. How so are you? I'm good. Now, I was out there on Saturday, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, sticking my ballot in the box. You were down there, too. I was. I was. I spent several hours on Saturday. You know, it, this has been a really busy election season for us here at Civil Beat. And, uh, but I, I was uh, eager to be there at the last day on Saturday, talking to as many voters as possible, uh, lining up or driving up to um, Honolulu Hale to deposit their ballots. Um, and I talked to about 20 over a course of about three hours. And I noticed a really interesting trend, which was that they seemed to be really disproportionately Republican. Now, at first I thought, well, that might just be sort of the the higher Republican interest in in-person voting rather than mail-in voting. Um, but my editors and I started to look carefully, and we waited for the Uh, final election results to come out. And we were quite startled at what we found. Um, You know, we're blue Hawaii, but we're blue, blue Hawaii. Um, And what was really surprising is we had the highest Republican turnout this primary that we've had in two decades. Yeah. And you said that was what, 20 percent? More than 20 percent, almost 22 percent of the voters this year picked Republican candidates. Um, 73,448 voters voted Republican. That's more than double the 32,000 that voted Republican back in 2018, which was the last non-presidential primary. So it's a really big surge. And then, you know, I went uh, looking back at uh you know, when Governor Lingle was elected. And I was surprised that it was 20 years ago. Uh, and yes. that was uh, double digits as well. Well, that's the last time we saw Republican participation in the 
in the 20 percentile, mm-hmm. in the 20 percentile range. And it really marks a very big change. I would just like to mention as as recently as 2018, it was only 11 percent of the voters in Hawaii selected the Republican Party, 15 percent in 2014, and only 12 percent in 2006. So we've typically had a very low Republican turnout, very low Republican participation. The other thing I noticed very that was very interesting on Saturday was what I saw, what I describe as sort of an enthusiasm gap between the Republicans and the Democrats. Um, at Civil Beat, we don't use un- uh, anonymous sources. The people that we quote, we require to use their names and go on the record. Um, and so I had to ask a lot of people if they were willing to both tell me their opinion and then give me their names and where they live. And I noticed that overwhelmingly the Republicans were more eager to do that, more eager to talk at length, um, and felt much more strongly in support of the candidates they were picking. It was very interesting. Yeah, I Um, mean, uh, you know, when I was down there at Honolulu Holly, um, I was uh, surprised to see such a large contingent for Republican uh, Gary Cordery. Um, Huge line. That's that's right. That's right. Um, what the Republicans who I interviewed told me they were thinking about what was motivating them to go to the polls was uh, concerns about high gas and food prices, uh, a perception of that the government was too heavy-handed during the uh, the COVID pandemic, and they were really angry at what they believed to be democratic mismanagement and corruption with the rail project and the Red Hill fuel leak. Um, Interestingly, no one mentioned Trump to me at all among the Hawaii voters going to vote in our local election. Oh, that is very curious, um, because that was one of the questions we posed to Lynn Finnegan just a little while ago um, about, you know, how that might affect the, uh, the outcome. It was very interesting. I I guess now we have to watch to see what happens in the general election. Um, uh, Hawaii's primary requires you to pick a party and stick with it. Um, In the general election, people are able to cross party lines more easily without their ballots being invalidated. Um, I think this strong Republican turnout in the primary suggests it's at least possible that we may see some surprises in the election ahead. We may see more people vote uh, Republican than we might have expected in previous decades. Well, I was surprised to see a post by uh, former Governor Ben Cayetano who said that if it wasn't for Sylvia Luke, he might be pulling a Republican ballot for the very first time in his life. Uh, and so that would that, that kind of uh, kind of you know made my eyes pop. I would say of the fifteen people who talked to me on the record and said they were voting Republican, at least five of them said they'd formerly been Democrats. Yeah. So, you know, we'll see what happens come November and we'll see, uh, you know, how the Republican candidates and they have fielded many, uh, how they fare uh, out there on the streets. It may be a surprisingly interesting and exciting election. Ah, That would be good. (laughs) All right. Well, well, thank you (laughs) so much, Kirsten. Thank you. That was reporter Kirsten Downey with today's Reality Check. You can read her stories on civilbeat.org. It's been two weeks since flights from Japan touched down at the Kona International Airport on the Big Island. It marked the resumption of the international visitor market since the uh, pandemic uh, shutdown. It comes as the domestic market is softening. But what what is in place to manage our numbers as tourism rebounds? The Island of Hawaii's Visitors Bureau has just released its report on how it's managing visitor numbers at hotspots across the Big Island. We caught up with Ross Birch, head of the Hawaii Island Visitors Bureau, to talk about the pandemic slump and the recovery on the Big Island. Yeah, we've almost made up uh, almost the entire gap of what we lost in our international with the U.S. market. And now that we're seeing a little bit of that softening coming in, that's our excitement of the direct flights coming from Japan. So we'll be able to then start to see our international numbers creep back up again uh, very slowly, 
uh, as we're, we're anticipating and Japan has been informing us that it's going to be kind of a slow road with their outbound visitation for quite a while yet, at least through the end of the year. So what can you share with us about the numbers? I mean, how many Japanese visitors are we seeing a day over there? Uh, we're actually seeing uh, coming through on a daily basis. We've got just the one flight three times a week that are coming through directly, but we've been seeing some trickle through uh, on connecting flights and the ramp up with flights coming into Oahu has really helped out with those that, you know, do multi-island visits. We're still far off of, of where our numbers were. We're probably only uh, now creeping up to about 15 or 20 percent of what our normal had been previously. So how many visitors are we getting? Because I think overall they were saying, oh, like 5,000 a day across the state. And we're, I think, at a, I forget, 1,000? Yeah, it's right about in that number right there. So, yes, at 5,000 to the state, about 1,000 for our island specifically uh, is actually more than our regular share. Typically over a a regular year, we usually get about 10% of what the total Japanese arrivals are to our island. So uh, it seems like this flight is really helping us jump a little bit ahead of that. I'm sure that folks, you know, are are welcoming uh, that segment of the the industry. Well, our island is a little, it's a little lopsided when it comes to the inventory amounts. We have about 85% of our room inventory on the west side of the island versus about 15 on even on the entire east side um, altogether. So there is kind of a little bit of advantage that the Kona and Kohala Coast areas are having with the stays. For the most part, many of those that do come to the west side will visit the east side through their stay. We'll visit the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, go through Hilo Town. And so there is an impact even uh, if they aren't staying within the Hilo area. You folks are working on the Destination and Management Action Plan. Part of that is giving local products a boost uh, and letting our visitors know about all the wonderful things that we produce over over there on that island. Yes, absolutely. From many of the purveyors that, you know, from agriculture to arts and crafts to uh, everything that uh, you can have made in Hawaii, um, we've got quite the, the cross-section here on this island of great individuals providing that product, and it's our job now to help them find the platform and get ways to do that and get those products to our, our visitors and other local residents. Talk about also what you're doing to manage the hot spots. I was down over by Kealakekua, you know, this summer, and I, I was so pleased, you know, the facilities uh, that you have over there are... <laughs> dare I say, better than here on Oahu. Uh, but it, it was just, you know, a really nice experience just as a visitor, you know, going down to that area. But there are other areas that have become problematic with too many tourists. It has been, and that's uh, hence the hotspot naming. And it is, it's been a very interesting ride for us where, you know, it, we're really looking to the community-based uh, organizations and the community themselves to kind of take the lead and really identify the specifics that they'd really like to see when it comes to how their locations, those hotspots are essentially managed. Um, A lot of them have partnerships with DLNR or other state or county agencies in the like. So we kind of work with them to figure out where, where is it best that we can come in and is it through additional stewardship is it through education? Is it through different types of interaction opportunities that we can basically take their lead and just amplify the process to get to the next level where they may see some challenges? You know, we've been hearing about YPO Valley, uh, Pololu Valley. As the numbers grow, um, you want to be able to, to manage those areas properly. You know, and you are looking to other islands to see, you know, what models that they're using, you know, what works over there that you could model uh, on your island? Absolutely. And that those are the conversations that we're having. HTA, through the, their efforts in the Destination Management Action Plan, have, you know, put in a, a pilot program for the Pololu stewardship, uh, which is a, a great way to get the community involved in the interaction and direction for uh, informing the visitors on what they should expect or how they should treat the area uh, as they enter into it. You know, next steps in that is to now use the uh, Nalahele um, and the DLNR for hopefully a reservation system potentially 
so that you can monitor even more, and then looking at parking. Uh, so we're kind of looking at these in cross sections, and then a lot of these will flow into some of the other hotspot areas uh, where we've been having very deep conversations with the YPO community. From them, they've had the benefit of a road closure where it's only Valley residents and those that are operating hollow operations are, are having access. That's actually added a little bit more to the impact on Polalu, but at the same time, it's given them a little bit of a reprieve and an opportunity for us to discuss a little deeper on what it is and how we can approach potential visitation should the road reopen in the near future. Right, because we've got to come up with numbers, like what's the capacity? How, what do we limit it to? How much progress have you made on, let's say, the using technology like geofencing? That is more, it's, from a statistical standpoint, uh, it's, it's worked out really well for us, uh, as well as getting information to individuals who are in very specific areas. Uh, we haven't used that ourselves to dive too deep into uh, many of these hotspots at this point, but I see it as a, as a great tool and advancement and supporting the communication. Once we have, you know, established programs, it's then now the communicating in that to our visitors as they come to make sure that they are aware of, of every uh, process and protocol necessary to enter uh, some of the areas on our island. So uh, do you think we're going to implement some type of geofencing in this next year? Uh, it's in, actually in process already. I know that there's... Uh, there's ways that we collect the data concurrently for HCA that, that understand on what, you know, the certain numbers are of individuals that are within certain areas that cross-reference to other areas as well. And it's just more of the data collection I think we have at this point. I think once we have some solid programs moving forward, then we'll be able to use it more as an um, aggressive or offensive type tool. Anything else that you think is important to underscore from our steering committee standpoint, really, they went really deep and broad uh, with this at the same time. So the fine-tuning of it, the now kind of one-year-in uh, level, we're looking at, okay, how are we going to now uh, see what some of the results are that we're getting out of this? And, you know, hotspots are, are definitely always top of the list. Those are being refined and, and even more identified. But I think we've had more and more conversations of how we really need to look at using those great examples throughout the state uh, that are currently in place and start to quickly implement them in, in other areas. That's really been a focus, working with those community-based organizations to take it to the next level. I think that many individuals that are visiting here or have the opportunity to enjoy some of these areas, are willing to invest and pay a price to, for accessibility. I think even more so uh, the opportunity to capture that from many locations versus having some type of green fee or automatic tourism tax is actually a greater way to get a little bit more income and actually have a dedicated resource attached to it as well. And then, you know, we were talking with uh, Professor Grusa just about how he was hearing that visitors were saying, yeah, we're, we're willing to help uh, pay a fee uh, to help make the place better and leave it better than when we arrived. Um, are, are we doing any uh, types of things like that or any programs like that in place? I mean, you know, whether it's planting a tree or helping to uh, beach cleanups or, you know, that kind of thing. Do you have anything in place over there on the Big Island? There are. There are a few opportunities in place uh, as we speak. Uh, a lot of them, um, we almost over them to a certain extent as well. You know, the Waikoloa Dryland Forest is working its way into increasing uh, the opportunity to, to have more uh, regenerative opportunities for our visitors to do that. We're also looking at new and creative ways to do that. It's This is actually something that's been part of what uh, corporations and, and the meetings, conventions, uh, uh, and incentives groups that have been coming to Hawaii for many years. We call them CSR or mm -hmm. the, the community service opportunities. They've been doing for many, many years, bringing their individuals out to engage with the community. And then they also donate either products like computers or mm -hmm. cash to different educational institutions or just straight to some community operations as well. So it's a model that's been in place for a long time on that side of it. Mm -hmm. Now, how do we ramp it? How do we get more 
opportunities, and then how are we going to have the ability to scale it uh, beyond that? That was Ross Birch of the Island of Hawaii's Visitors Bureau talking with us about the snapshot of the Destination Management Action Plan for the Big Island. Community, uh, community meetings are expected to be scheduled to get input in the next month or two. in our hometown and neighborhood is something that many Hawaii residents take seriously. But just how impactful are they in our lives? A study was recently published about the power of neighborhoods you grew up in affecting economic opportunities. Contributing editor Neil Milner joins us this morning for The Long View to talk about it. Good morning. Hi. So, yeah, tell us about this concept. Well, that's what's happened recently is part of a longer story, and let me just briefly tell the longer story. There's an economist named Raj Chetty who does the best research on, let's call it, social mobility, which is how people move up and do better than their parents. So a number of years ago, and he's I think he's going to win the Nobel Prize. We can talk about that another time. On the basis of an enormous amount of data, they came to a conclusion that's uh, been published and is also available in the Economic, Op- Economic Opportunity Atlas that says, you know what really makes the difference? If you control for everything, the neighborhood that you live in affects your ability to move up more than anything else. Now, what you have to understand about that is, first of all, by neighborhood, they mean really small tracts of land. And secondly, what they mean is that where you grew up in your little corner of the world was much more important factor in how you turned out than level of education, than the economic uh, conditions of the neighborhood, so that you could have two little plots very close to one another. And he used to use Los Angeles for an example. That would um, one would they'd be similar in everything. But they'd be different in terms of how the people had come out of their neighborhood did, and it seemed to have something to do with what went on in the neighborhood. That was the interesting news. The not-so-interesting news at the time is that Chetty said, I can't explain this yet. I don't know. It seems to maybe have something to do with the presence of male neighbors, but that's just suggestive, and I don't know how. So the recent study is about what can we see about what is it in these more smaller kinds of ways of thinking about things that makes a difference. And it turns out to be friendship, that the neighborhoods from which people grew or um, tended to be neighborhoods in which people had friendships with people who were different from an economic group. Or to put it in a more straightforward way, if you were a poor kid and you had friendships with people who were wealthier, that made it more likely that you would be successful. Some ways it's not so new, right? In some ways you say, as Chetty said, you know, if you grew up in a neighborhood where everybody was like you and no one went to college, you weren't going to get any good information on what college is or how you apply and all that sort of stuff. But there's something else going on here, which is that these friendship patterns are hard to come by, um, and they have to be something that is pretty tight not just going to an integrated school, but they seem to be as powerful a factor as anything else. All the other stuff about economics, about the level of education, those are less important than whether you had these kinds of friendship patterns. So it's not just like where you stay, but who you hang with. No, that's <laughs> right. Who do you who you hang with in a real kind of way? Not just who you went to school with, because all of us who went to school, even when I did, you know, when my school was named after George Washington, who was actually still alive at the time. Um, <laughs> You still had cliques. You had people that sat together. The fact that you went to a diverse school didn't mean that you had diverse friendships. Uh, and so there is something else. Um, there, there is something else that's that's going on here, and it might be something closer to what we call the social infrastructure. Some environments uh, bring about this kind of link, this kind of diverse friendship patterns. 
much better than others. The ones that don't do so well are formal institutions, schools, churches, and so on. The ones that do better are hanging in the neighborhood at certain places, recreational uh, places, sporting events, all those kinds of things. So what it means is that this is really important research because it gets you, it should get you out of the conventional way of thinking about intervening. You know, we intervene economically and that will make a difference. Uh, Or culture is so powerful that you can't do very much. It's a different way of thinking about things. It's almost as if you you feel with your heart, but then you grow your mind. Because if you don't know uh, what, you know, that your friend's world is different from yours, you know, you you don't know what the what's the, the the example. You don't know the what's on the menu if you don't see the menu. Sure. But it's not. But you have to understand, it isn't just you feeling that way. It's this collective, this kind of powerful but but collective response. Um, that this this kind of linkage that that we can't that it's hard to deal with. So this is where you, this is where it sort of stands right now. This is really important stuff because you really have to think about it in other ways. But there are two challenges here. One challenge is to translate that, if it's possible, into some kind of intervention. Are there ways you can encourage that kind of thing? Um, the usual kind of, you know, bringing people together and so on. It may be closer to what Robert Putnam used to talk about, about bowling alone. There's far fewer groups that hang together. He would talk about bowling teams a lot. That may be one thing. So one of the challenges is to say, can I make sense out of this in a way that we can bring it about? You have to think outside the box because this is not the liberal notion of you get them into school, you make free community colleges. That's all important, but something has something else to happen. The other thing, of course, and, and a guy named Rob Henderson just wrote a piece about this, the other thing is that people don't necessarily feel comfortable with folks that aren't like them. Henderson writes this. Henderson says, I came from a broken home. I, I had nothing. Uh, my father ran away. My mother was a drug addict. I got sent to a foster home. I get adopted. That father runs away. We're living in a crummy place. Um, I came out of this. I went into the military, and then I got a degree. At, and he, wasn't, he didn't come out of this because he was some you know poor guy genius. I went, I went into the military, I learned a few things, came out, got into Yale, and now I'm finishing a Ph.D. in, in uh, psychology at Cambridge. None of my old friends are like that. They're pretty much the way they were before. And he ends by saying, you know, if someone would have said to me, um, uh, you need to make friends with rich kids, um, and we're going to help you, I would have said no thanks because I wouldn't have felt comfortable. So in a sense, you're fighting against the way we tend to form things. Now, one last thing. If you want to know more about this, you can actually, and I think the stuff's on the website, you can look at, you can, he's got a whole set, thousands of places. You can actually look at your own high school, for example, to see how your high school right now does on these certain measures, how how diverse friendship patterns are and so on. It's kind of fun. I'm, I'm, it's a little complicated. I'm not totally at home with it yet. But I think it's important to think along these lines, but it's also maybe something that is almost something you might have to feel pessimistic about because it's so hard to do. Yeah, So, but it's, those connects have to be genuine. They've got to be yes. lasting. They can't be fleeting. And probably, real. if not spontaneous, they have to develop... Uh, is you know, and some, it's not clear what exactly you can do to make them intervene. Yeah, I mean, because you, if you think of your kids and your yeah. grandkids, you want to give them more opportunity. So how do you do that? Yeah. But mm. might be recreation, sports, um, those kinds of things, places where people gather regularly. But it's got to be true. It's yeah. Be uh, authentic. Well, try to fool a teenager, right? I mean, try to <laughs> try to say to an adult, as an adult, this is what I think you should do. Or, for that matter, any kid who's over about two years old. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, well, interesting conversation. But thank you so much, Neil. You're welcome. Take care. We have been talking to our contributing editor, Neil Milner, for our biweekly segment that we call The Long View.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Occupational Safety and Health, observing Safe and Sound Week, a nationwide event that recognizes organizations committed to safety. More by searching OSHA Safe and Sound Week. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bike Mars Cafe, we find out about an electric motor glider competition called EHOC. We'll learn how this competition is an innovative first step toward advancing sustainable air travel while exposing students to engineering, aviation, and project management disciplines. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering a variety of classes and creative experiences for youth and adults at its art school, reopening September 1st. Class registration is now open at honolulumuseum.org. is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, we have the bird's favorite part of the news, the feather forecast. Uh, just kidding. It's Manu Minute. And today we're hearing from the Koloa Maoli, Hawaii's endemic duck. These quacks are brought to you by Zeno Kanto and the University of Hawaii at Hilo biology professor, Patrick Hart. Koloa Maoli, or the Hawaiian duck, is found only in Hawaii and is the only native duck species still present in the main Hawaiian islands. They're very close relatives of the mallard ducks that are commonly fed by children in public ponds and lakes. Unlike mallards, though, male and female Koloa Maoli are harder to tell apart. Both sexes have orange legs and feet and an overall mottled brown body. They also have greenish-blue patch of wing feathers known as a speculum that is easily seen when they're swimming. Adult males are usually darker overall and have a brown bill, while females have a dull orange bill. So, if you see a pair of ducks that are similar-looking and look like female mallards, there's a good chance you're looking at native Hawaiian ducks. Koloa Maoli quack in a similar way to mallards, and this quack may have played an important role in Hawaiian history. It's said that Imai Kalani, the fierce Ali'i warrior of Ka'u on Hawaii Island, was blind, but was aided in his battles by two Koloa Maoli that would hover above and report to him through their quacks the direction of anyone approaching him in battle. He could then throw spears with deadly accuracy at his opponents. Koloa Maoli eat a variety of aquatic plants, green algae, and aquatic invertebrates like mollusks, snails, and crustaceans. They were still abundant and regularly hunted across Hawaii until much of their habitat was drained and converted to sugar plantations by the end of the 1800s. This is also around the time that mongoose were introduced, which found these ground-nesting ducks to be easy prey. By the early 1900s, Koloa Maoli were very difficult to find, and by 1962 there were fewer than 500 individuals left, restricted to the islands of Kauai and Ni'ihau, which, non-coincidentally, were the only islands without mongoose. They were federally listed as an endangered species in 1967, soon after a captive breeding program began. Captive-bred birds were released on the Big Island, Maui, and Oahu. A few hundreds still exist in upland ponds and streams on Hawaii Island, but the ones on Maui and Oahu have all interbred with introduced mallards, so mainly exist as Hawaiian duck hybrids. The best place nowadays to see non-hybrid Koloa Maui is the island of Kauai, where as many as 2,000 birds inhabit wetlands, ponds, and taro fields. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. 
Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah, providing tile, mosaic murals, and planters for more than 25 years. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about hydroflow permeable pavers designed to absorb rainwater and reduce runoff. More than 15,000 outrigger canoe paddlers from around the world recently competed in the World Championships of Outrigger Canoe Racing. The race, known as the World Sprints, was held in England, and the largest contingent of paddlers came from Team Hawaii. (laughs) HBR reporter Kube Hirishi was there, and she joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. There are 1,500, actually. I think you said 15,000. We we wish, but uh, (laughs) it is a growing sport, and, um, you know, being held in England, um, the Great Britain Outrigger host a sort of organization had mentioned that, you know, Outrigger paddling really only started growing over the last 10 years. Uh, brought to them uh, by uh, folks here in Hawaii. And so um, to see it uh, at the level that it was at uh, there at Dorney Lake was amazing. It was very hot. Ask anybody who had uh, who had been there. It just wrapped up yesterday. And as you mentioned, nearly 400 outrigger canoe paddlers from the islands representing Team Hawaii. And, um, you know, I, I followed a dozen or so Opio or youth paddlers uh, from Keokaha Kilkahawane Youth Development, a youth-focused nonprofit led by their coach, Kahi Warfield. And for many of these keiki, it was their first time to England, and for some of them, their first time out of the state. So it was quite a trek for them. Uh, for a 19-year-old, I, I wanted to ask all of them, you know, how, how is this different from, from uh, this man-made lake, for folks who aren't familiar with Dorney Lake? Um, it, how different is this from paddling back home? And for 19-year-old uh, Pakela Kahiki Ka'ava, the steerswoman for the Kyokaha's uh, Junior 19 Women's Crew, she says steering these sort of lightweight canoes on this very flat lake was quite a challenge. These vaas are nothing like I'm used to. I've been steering for years. I've never experienced something like this. I'd say that the only difference, or like the main difference on this, is that you can't, use fluid mo- movements you have to use rapid quick movements so with the outrigger that we're used to we use fluid movements and things translate very nicely the turns will whip but on this if you use anything fluid nothing will happen it's something she really came into because for the the thousand meter that's what four turns where you mm. take the the outrigger and you have to turn and they actually if you uh listen to the story in that first heat they end up uh taking home the win and wow. and that's quite a feat of course um defeating the maori who have um always been a, a rough contender for hawaii uh, there at world sprints uh but it was uh, it was a, a good win for them um but most paddlers you know when you think about paddling season here in hawaii you'll compete with your respective canoe clubs Lots of pride goes into that. But at World Sprints, all the paddlers are are, are sometimes asked to compete alongside their long-term competitors for Team Hawaii, and that's something they do gladly. But there was a lot of, I saw a lot of that where it was like, hey, we need one more person. You know, can you go grab Mm -hmm. such and such? And then they've got to get into the rhythm of paddling together. And on that world stage with the competition, there's a lot of pressure there. But Hawaii has always had a a strong representation at World Sprints. uh, So it's no surprise that Hawaii made up nearly, what, 25% or a quarter of the competitors at this year's race. Uh, Kaili Moikeha, the area coordinator for Team Hawaii, who I met from just hearing everyone yell, Kaili, <laughs> we need this, we need our paddles, we need our person. Uh, she says paddling is, is really Hawaii's sport. It's kind of our thing. Paddling isn't just what we do, it's who we are. It is something that we're culturally grounded in. We're, it's, it's part of our roots, where we come from, how we do things. It's part of our lifestyle, not just something we do for fun. In Hawaii, especially, paddling is one of the only sports that the whole family can participate on the same day in the same place. You can bring your whole family down. You get the babies, you get the kids, your teenagers, you get, you know, brother, sister, auntie, uncle, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. 
the, this growing community of outrigger uh, canoe paddlers in Hawaii really came into focus at this year's World Sprints uh, because they needed to dis- they had to add additional race categories to accommodate the kupuna categories or kupuna oh, yes. paddlers like uh, I think of uh, Napi um, Napoleon. Um, but also 83-year-old Jimmy Naniole of Hilo. He's been paddling since he was 18, year old, 18 years old and says part of it is just to stay healthy, right? Healthy body, healthy mind. Uh, but paddling is, is about more than that uh, for him. I'm not taking care of Kino. I'm taking care of a relationship of which I'm a function and a kuleana of what I'm looking at as the aina and the bai, the kai. And the va is nothing more than a vehicle that allows us to be with both. So reconnecting to the aina and to the kai and vai there in England uh, happens just as much there as it, it does back home. But uh, the, the as I mentioned, the competition wrapped up yesterday and the latest medal tally shows Hawaii bringing in the most uh, medals for club uh, categories. So six men, 12 men uh, with 34 medals. Wow. You know, and, and so, gosh, then the host country then provided all the canoes. Because I, I was wondering, are we going to be shipping our canoes over there? I didn't really understand yes, that. Yes, you yeah. can bring your paddles, but uh, the canoes are, are provided by the Va Federation. Wow, that's awesome. Well, you were very fortunate. I'm very jealous that you were there and I was not. <laughs> but thank you so much. Mahalo. That was HBR reporter Ku'uvehi Hiraishi. To read and listen to more of her stories, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, it's the final countdown for Hawaii's only coal-fired power plant. Are we prepared to weather the crunch on our energy resources? You got feedback for us? Call our talkback line 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. Email works to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And want to listen back to something you heard? Find all of our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.